back to another episode of the Decision Hour. I'm your host, Adam Bird. Folks, you're going to want to grab a drink, sit down, and get comfortable because you're going to want to listen to this one. I'm excited about the guests that I have on today. Uh, my guest today is a veteran. He's a former CIA case officer with uh, roughly two over two decades of experience in, in and expertise in counterterrorism. He's operated in the shadows all over the world. He's an expert in his craft, and he has testified before Congress and has shared his expertise with over 10,000 professionals from the CIA, FBI, military, and police officers. He was um, uh, directly with an, an Arabian ruler, if I'm, if I'm not mistaken, we'll get into this, but he was serving as an advisor to the Afghan national police officers uh, during his 18-month stint uh, in Cabal. And during his time there, uh, he authored uh, a book called The Hidden, which we're going to uh, get uh, a little bit more information on that uh, as well. So without further ado, Brian Fairchild. Brian, welcome to the show, sir. Adam, thank you so much. Great to meet you, and, and thanks for having me on. Absolutely. Uh, you, sir, have quite the extensive background, and I absolutely love it. We've spent a, a few minutes offline uh, chit chat, and I said, hey, "Listen, we got to start recording this because this just <laughs> this is too great." So you talk all day, like, you know, right? <laughs> right? Um, tell tell the listeners uh, just a little bit more about yourself. All right. Well, I normally start off with an origin story okay. because it, it, it's really kind of a, a cool thing. And I like the fact that I'm, I, w- I would like, if I have an opportunity, I would like to inspire, you know, kids, okay. right? Because yeah. uh, that's how it all happened for me. And, and that story goes like this. When I was 13 years old, I lived in Mesa, Arizona. Don't know if you've ever been in Mesa, Arizona, but it's hot. I mean, 100 degrees, 110 degrees. I, in I the- lived in Avondale on the West Valley. Okay, there you go. <laughs> so, you know, 100 degrees in the shade. It's desert. Saguaro <laughs> cacti everywhere, you know, so... You know, I'm and I'm, you know, I'm I'm a kid. I'm going to school, and uh, I I decide I'm going to read a book. I think I read it for school, or maybe I got it out of the library. I don't know, but it was Jack London's The Call of the Wild. And I tell you, Adam, I mean, you know, when you're a kid in the desert, looking out your window at saguaro cactus, you know, cacti and and uh, and scorpions running around, <laughs> and you read about you know Alaska and pine trees and sled dogs and snow. snow. I mean, they had snow. You know what the snow looked like. You know, I mean, you, you know, right away my my imagination was captured, and I just realized I, you know, I wanted that. You know, I wanted that life of adventure. I wanted to go out there somewhere. You know, I I wasn't going to stay here and with the saguaro. I had to go out there. So. So that's the first that's the first thing that got me uh, got me started. And I wanted to say that because, man, you know, kids today should read more because if you read books, you can go anywhere. Yeah. Right. When you're reading that book, you can be on Mars or Venus and World War One. You could be in, you know, the, the seaside you know, with a girl. I mean, you could be anywhere. You know, that book transports you wherever you you know want it to take you. Yeah. So that's what it did for me. Well. A year later, we moved to Boulder, Colorado. <laughs> Perfect. Lived on the the you know the front you know front range of the Rocky Mountains. There were pine trees. There was snow. You know, there was all that kind of stuff. So I was you know I saw my very first snowfall in Boulder, Colorado, and I was just gobsmacked by the whole thing. I mean, it would just be coming down, but it was silent and you know and all that. So so when I was in Boulder, I went to the movie theater once by myself. 
And uh, and I watched uh, the the very first James Bond movie, which was from Russia with Love, with uh, Sean Connery playing yeah. you know James Bond. And it what well, everything about the movie Adam just captured my imagination. It was filmed in Istanbul. There were foreign languages being spoken. There were great outfits. You know, there were KGB guys running all around and sounding like you know KGB guys. And and you know, Bond and his Turkish liaison guy would go beneath the city into these caverns and catacombs, and they had like a a, a submarine periscope that would come up in into the Soviet embassy. You know, and they, they would spy in the Soviets and that sort of thing. And so I saw that, and I said. That's what I want to do. I, I got to do that stuff, you know. And so I immediately got out of the uh, of the uh, the movie theater and beelined it down to the the Boulder Public Library. And because I can't just once I get interested in something, I can't just sit there and wait for somebody to tell me about it. I mean, I got to go find out. Right. So I went down there and I tossed to the library and I said, "Excuse me, ma'am. You know, I." I just saw this movie and I'd really like to find out about this. Can you help me? And she helped me. We got stuff laid out on tables, Adam, you know, new, uh, newspapers and uh, Newsweek articles and books and that sort of thing. But no matter how hard we looked, we couldn't find anything for 14 year old spy wannabes. So, you know, I'm really kind of disappointed by the whole thing. And, uh, and in these adult books like Ross and Wise, CIA and, you know, these books that are like this thick and written from an academic standpoint. I was looking through the pages, you know, looking and looking in the you know, the references and stuff, trying to find somebody, something that looked like James Bond in those books. And I couldn't. Right. So I decided, well, I got to find out. So what's the next step? Well, I'll write to CIA. So I, <laughs> I, I went home. And uh, and I was taking typing at uh, Centennial Junior High School in Boulder, Colorado, and we had a format book, you know, for letters and things like yeah. that. So I had the format book home, and so I just took out some line notebook paper, got a pencil, and in pencil, in capital block letters, I wrote, Dear CIA, you know, my name is Brian Fairchild. I'm a 14-year-old student at Centennial Junior High School, and I would like to be a spy. And you tell me how I should do that. You know, you're sincerely Brian Fairchild. Well, lo and behold, <laughs> I mean, I, I don't, don't know if I expected to get a letter or not, but, you know, I forgot about it after about a week. But it was an important thing because, and this is another thing that I want to get across to kids, take the shot. You know, you can think of all these great things. Oh, I, I want to be a doctor. I should go down and talk to a doctor. Oh, no, I don't want to bother him. You know, that's no, take, take the shot. Yes. You know, yes. if you take the shot, then at least you have a chance. If you don't take the shot, you don't have any chance. So I took the shot, you know, so I, I scratched the itch and I felt better about it. But one day I come home and on my pillow, my mom had gotten a letter and propped it up on my pillow. And I come in and it's a government envelope. Up in the left-hand corner, it's in color. You know, it's when government used to use the color stuff, it's a Central Intelligence Agency, you know, post office box, whatever, Washington, D.C., and it's addressed to Mr. Fairchild at my address. And I'm thinking, oh, man, I'm in trouble now because the only Mr. Fairchild I had ever known was my father. Right. Right? So, I mean, I so they're writing to my dad, and they're going to say, uh, Mr. Fairchild, you know, we really think it's great. Your son's, you know, a nice guy and he wants a, a job with us at some point. But, you know, take him aside. Tell him to forget about this stuff. 
we're a busy group and we can't be getting, you know, block letter, pencil, you know, things, you know, <laughs> help us out here, will you? So I figured that's what was going on. But I opened it at him and I find a two page typed plan for me to become a CIA officer. No kidding. And and so not so that's a cool thing right there. But the best thing was that it was written by a case officer by the name of Michael Todorovich. Now, just remember, I saw from Russia with love. Yeah. Right. And there's Russian guys and KGB guys, Mikhail, Mikhail, this, Mikhail, that. And here I'm <laughs> looking at this letter, Mikhail Todorovich. And I'm like, how cool is that? That's got to be the best name in the whole world. You know, <laughs> I wish how I can't be a spy, you know. Fairchild, Brian Fairchild. Doesn't sound right. You know, Bond. Yeah, that sounds right like that. Or, or Todorovich, Mikhail Todorovich. OK, there's a spy name. Brian Fairchild doesn't work very well. So anyway, I, I, you know, I read it and man, I'll tell you the guy, you know, I mean, he started out, you know, remember where I, where I was in life at the time. Right. So this guy decided on his own, you know, it wasn't an agency program or anything. He was going to, he was touched by this letter printed in pencil and he was just going to give me his best advice. You know, how, what a great guy. That's cool. So he says, Brian, you know, stay in junior high school. That'd be good to do and go on to high school and learn as much as you can in high school and have a great time. You know, high school can be one of the most fun experiences in your life. If you go to college, I would recommend that you take uh, international relations or international politics or area studies. And, and he says, uh, you know, and, and you kind of need a foreign language. You know, we're the CIA. We work overseas. And so, you know, find a, a, you know, a language that you like and get into a foreign language. And the military would be great, too, if you, if you can get into the military before you apply, you know, for the agency. But when you're ready to accept, you know, six months out, when you're ready to accept employment with CIA, contact us again. We'll bring you in. We'll give you a polygraph. We'll do some interviews and we'll get you on board. And I was like, man, I just got an offer from CIA. I'm 14 years old. I got it made, man. I got it made. So I would sleep with that damn letter under my pillow, you know. And But I mean, the fact that Michael Todorovich, you know, wrote a letter to me yeah. after that thing I wrote him and to speak to me as an adult and to give me adult advice as to what I needed to do, which was exactly what I was looking for. That's why I ran down to the, the Boulder Public Library, you know. Yeah. So, I mean, what a great guy. And And it wasn't even a fake name. In fact, when I got into the agency... Yeah, you know, at one point I was doing an interim assignment with the Taiwan desk and I was telling this, this story to people. And the guy that was my boss on that desk, he said, Mike, I know Mike, Mike Todorovich. Yeah, he's a great guy. He was out in Denver for a while. Great case officer, really great guy, you know. So so he was a real guy. It wasn't just a made up name that somebody, some clerk, you know, took. Right. Michael Todorovich was a real case officer and he, you know, he had the the grace to answer a 14 year old, you know, you know, baby like message and to give me, you know, give me that advice. And for the rest of my life, Adam, I called that the Todorovich plan. And, and, you know, I basically followed it whenever I got to a point where I had to make a decision. I mean, like all of us, you know, my life went up and down, you know, I, you know, I, I, I wasn't sure every single day I was going to go into the CIA, but whenever I got those opportunities to, you know, to get out of high school or to get into college or to decide on the military, I took Todorovich's advice. And so, you know, the, the point of the whole thing is, is that when I applied to the agency, 
you know, and the agency is very selective. I mean, it's like SEAL Team Six or, or uh, you know, or uh, Delta, or... You, know, uh, you know, SEAL Team Six or, or Delta. No. You know, when you're when you're talking about the military, or finding a, an equal. So I mean, it's that kind of level. You're you know, you're competing with guys that have PhDs and all kinds of things. But I had something that none of those guys had. I had the Todorovich plan, and it carried the day. I mean, they looked at that, you know, at 25, oh, and I had gone into the 19th Special Forces Group, so I had that too, right? So at 25 years old, I went into the agency and said, okay, Todorovich's plan, I got the Green Beret, you know, I had dual major international relations and Asian studies. I got Chinese because I was an exchange student in Taiwan for a year. And uh, there you go. I'd like to join. And they said, come on in. Come on in. You had an entire plan written out for you. And that's, and that's the, and that's, that's such a cool, cool story to to, to have is like you have a, somebody, you write a letter. Like you said, you said, take, take the shot. You took the shot. Right. and, And somebody who didn't have to, Somebody saw this letter from a 14-year-old boy and says, oh, I'm going I'm to respond to this and give him a blueprint. Yeah. And 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 if, like, looking at your career, like, you, the Todorovic, did I say that right? I hope yeah. I said that His th- yeah. That plan, that's such a cool story. And what a cool guy, you know? I mean, of all the guys that that letter might have landed on, you know, somebody's desk. Right. You know, I actually, I was in Boulder, Colorado, and there I looked in the yellow pages. You know, back then you had yellow pages. Right. We didn't have computers and iPhones, <laughs> stuff like that. So I looked in the yellow pages under the federal government and said Central Intelligence Agency. And I gave a post office box in Denver. And so, you know, when I wrote the letter, I, I addressed it according to the yellow pages. Got a stamp from my mom. You know, I'm a 14 year old. Okay, mom, can I have a stamp? You know, I got a stamp from my mom, put it on a letter and mailed it. And Michael Dodorovich happened to be, you know, sitting on the desk in, in Denver, Colorado, when that letter came in. And for whatever reason, you know, that he had within him, he said, you know, this is cool. This is OK. I'm going to write back to this kid yeah. and I'm going to tell him what he needs to do. I mean, I've, I've been trying to pay that forward ever Jeez. since then, you know, and that's why I said when we started out this, I wanted to say I said I want to get to kids. So if any kids are listening to this. Take the shot. Yeah. You know, write to the CIA, write to go see a doctor, whatever you're interested in. Don't just sit back and go, well, yeah, they probably just think I was silly. It doesn't matter. Take the shot. You never know where it's going to take. Well, the worst thing they're going to do is say no, right? Yeah. Or you never hear from Or you never hear, right? Yeah. Um, I mean, golly, that's such an inspirational. That's so cool. I love hearing stories like that. People, because it's just like, man, the, the world really is full of good people. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know what I mean? Yeah, and, and it's good that we tell their story. Exactly, you know? yeah. We try to pay it forward like they did, you know, otherwise we'd all be a bunch of curmudgeons and <laughs> never get anything done, you know. <laughs> Brian, Brian, you talked about 19th Group. I heard you say it, and, yeah. and I'm familiar a little bit with them. And in my days in the military, 19th Group was in um, Camp Williams, Utah, just south of uh, Salt Lake there. And I, yeah. I did my NC, uh, NCO school. Uh, it was PLDC back in, in my day. Uh, uh, there. Now you were telling me offline that that's that's now that's you, know, you were with the group in, at uh, in, in Colorado. Mostly Air National Guard. Yeah. Yeah. And I think I think there's still you know uh, you know there's still a, a section a there. there. Yeah. Yep. I mean it's it's headquartered now in uh, in 
the Salt Lake City area. Yeah. yeah. But it extends to well, they got they got five states. I think there's yeah, Colorado, yeah. Washington, Virginia. There's another. Yeah, thing. yeah. It's, it's, it's scattered around. But yeah. when I got into it, I was in Boulder, you know, and I saw that they were just creating it in Buckley Air National Guard Base. You know, when I was a high school student, remembered Michael Todorovich. You know, and all my friends were getting out. In fact, we were going around and we were taking the uh, the test to get into the Navy and the Coast Guard and stuff like that. And, uh, you know, I just sort of diverted and I went, walked out to Buckley Air National Guard Base, which was, you know, out in the middle of nowhere at that point. You know, I, I took a bus from Boulder to, to Denver and then, you know, found out where Buckley Air National Guard Base is and walked <laughs> to it and, uh, and, you know, took the test and stuff there and they did what they needed to do and said, okay, welcome aboard. And then, you know, then I went on the, the basic and AIT in Fort Ord, California, which was oh, really wow. cool because yeah. it was right on Monterey Bay. And then uh, I went to Fort Benning for jump school and Fort Bragg for special forces qualification phase one and phase two. So so that's how that all worked out. But, yeah, the, the 19th special forces group. And like I said, this is my commemoration to the 19th oh, group it. here. I mean, I thought if I was wearing my brave, it would look a little too much. So, <laughs> so I figured I'd just wear the cap. Now, now, and you said you had a foreign language too. It was a was it Chinese. Yeah, Mandarin Chinese. Mandarin. When I was because okay. there's yeah, different see, I, dialect, I in, if I'm not mistaken. Pardon me. There's different dialect of Chinese, oh, there are. if I'm not yeah. mistaken. But but Mandarin is the basic the the, okay. the basic language of all Chinese. But you have Cantonese and Shanghaiese and Hainanese. And all those really are, sadly speaking, are dying languages. And, uh, you know, the language that, you know, is cohesive for the whole country is right. Mandarin. Okay. So, and there are 1.4 billion, you know, Chinese. So if you get Mandarin Chinese, you can speak to a whole lot of people. You know, so uh, when I was in college, I got into to college at California State at Chico. And I took Chinese uh, Chinese course there, and then turned out that because I was motivated and I was really focused on it, and I was into kung fu and all that stuff at the time, and you know on the weekends I'd drive down to San Francisco's Chinatown and go to kung fu movies and go to you know dojos and watch them and you know work out and all that kind of stuff. So when I got the opportunity to take Chinese, that was great. So then I'd go down to San Francisco and I'd try my Chinese out down in San Francisco, and uh, and then my Chinese instructor, my professor. He came up to me one day and he said, hey, you're the best student I have. And uh, we've got this opening for an exchange student. Would you like to be an exchange student to Taiwan? And I jumped at that. You know, I took the shot, you know. Again. Yeah. Yeah. And and so did that. And, uh, you know, I basically finished my Asian studies major when I came back uh, and I had a year to go. So I took on the second major in international relations and, you know, finished that. So that. Was just right along Michael Todorovich's plan, man. Now, so so for the timeline purposes for for this uh, show, we talked high school, we talked military. Was the military and college same time? So was it guard time, or was it? Did you do college first and then military, or was it was it simultaneous? Oh, when I got out of high school, I you know I got out of high school. I graduated in '69, went into special forces in '70. Gotcha. You know, then I was in the unit, you know, for you know years until then I transferred. And went to San Francisco, gotcha. and I transferred out of the 19th and into a 81 millimeter mortar, you know, company oh, up uh, up by college, <laughs> and uh, and but you know, see, here's the great thing, Adam, and you know how this stuff works out. So I'm sitting up there, and you've got your uniform, right? I right. mean, you've got your patches and stuff. I mean, just because you go to a different unit, you don't take it off, you don't stop wearing the beret, 
So I'm in this unit and then these guys come by to do our summer camp, you know, evaluations. Right. And, uh, and this, this one guy, you know, they come, they, they come out from the Presidio in San Francisco. And one guy is wearing a beret, you know, he's a green beret. So some guys came over to me and they said, uh, Hey, Fairchild, uh, you know, Caviani over here, he's, he's, you know, he was fifth special forces and you're the only guy here that he can, you know, really relate to. Would you mind being his, you know, liaison to the company and stuff like that for the two weeks that he's here? And, uh, yeah, great. You know, so I'd sit there and I'd talk with the guy and he'd tell me all about his experiences in Vietnam and, and all this sort of thing. And come to find out, I'm, you know, he was, he was just the nicest guy. He's about my size. You know, he wore a little bracelet that a Vietnamese kid, you know, gave him. And we talked about that. And I mean, we could get into big, long stories about this because he sort of went off the deep end for a while. But but um, when he came back for the graduation ceremony, mm. all of a sudden, all of us found out he was a Medal of Honor winner. And so, you know, because he wasn't wearing it with his fatigue, right. you know, but when he wore the dress uniform, he came and and, you know, I mean, I was just, whoa. And he had told me these stories. Right. And, you know, you never know when you're talking to somebody, right, you right. know, how much they're embellishing or anything. But I'm at the university at the time. And after I knew that and he, you know, he was a Medal of Honor winner, I went to zoomed over to the university library and went to presidential documents, which are pretty cool. They're all red bound books. And I, and I found his citation and his citation was exactly how he had told me the story had happened. You know, so I confirmed that, that he was the real deal and he was not embellishing and he really did get the, you know, and he was just like Jay, just like, uh, like, uh, John Wayne. I mean, at one point he stood up with an M60 machine gun and drew fire to himself so that, you know, the rest of the guys could escape and get down to an LZ and, and get out. Wow. But I mean, so, so that's what I, you know, you, you take that step and, one step after another and you meet this guy and you meet that guy and you write to a guy and Michael Todorovich comes back. And, you know, I mean, you just never know where your journey's going to go. I, just <laughs> to like be a fly on the wall for a day, you know, walk, I just like to walk in Brian's shoes for a day just to, just to see what that was. I, I tell you what, man, it's, it's such, but, and I know, you know we, I don't you know, feel like that about myself. Right, of I course mean, not. You're very humble. I mean, and, and when you're in it, you know, when when you're in special forces or you're in the agency, well, everybody around you is the same. Right. 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 I mean, it's not like, you know, well, there are you know some guys that are like walk down the hall of CIA headquarters and people like that's him. That's him. Yeah. You know, yeah, we have some legends, you know, and stuff like that. But I mean, you know, for the most part, you're just with your your normal colleagues you know they've all done similar things they've all been spies and they've they've all been in the military or in combat or whatever you know so you don't really think about it you know in that sense when you're when you're in it you know well let's let's fast forward here a little bit um joining the agency get, getting into the agency you're you're in the agency now can you discuss what you did in the cia yeah well you know, let me do it this way. There, let me describe because most people don't have any idea what please a spy is, right? But you've seen a lot of media stuff. Well, you got okay. So <laughs> the so we were set up. CIA was set up to go after the Soviet Union. There was no CIA before 1947. Mm -hmm. So in in the war years, World War II, there was the Office of Strategic Services, right? 
OSS. And a lot of guys, you know, from OSS eventually went to CIA when it was created in 47. But OSS itself was disbanded. I mean, it was this great, effective organization. It was a legendary organization. It did great things. You would think that, you know, after the war, the Army would want to maintain some kind of a level of expertise like existed in OSS. Right. But they didn't, you know, so so after 45, they said, way to go, guys. You did a great job. We don't need you anymore. Right. And then two years went by and, and then, you know, all the policymakers started going, oh, you know, the Soviets are going to get the bomb and we've got the bomb. They're going to get the bomb and we better do something. They're all over the world. They're starting to take over the world. They're joining with China. And, oh, man, you know, so they created CIA to counter the Soviet Union. Now, for almost all of the CIA's history from 1947 until 1991, when the Soviet Union went belly up, the CIA was full of spies. And a spy as defined like this, a spy at that time, an intelligence officer, a case officer, operations officer, whatever you want to call them, at that time, what you did is you went overseas, you lived overseas, you spoke foreign languages, you understand foreign countries. You understood the religions and the cultures and the history of the countries you were in. And you went to these, you know, you went to these outposts, these embassies, wherever, you know, because almost all of it was official cover in an embassy. So you go to these places and you're covered as a first secretary, second secretary, third secretary of, in, you know, diplomatic ranks. And you're supposed to run around and penetrate those governments and recruit spies in those governments to tell you the secrets of those governments and any other government. So like maybe you're you're going after the local government, but you're also you have cases against the Chinese and you have cases against, you know, the Soviets and you're trying to penetrate the KGB and the Ministry of State Security and that sort of thing. So that's what you do. And to do that, it's basically, you know. There's no, there's, it's, you're not like in the teams, you're not like SEAL Team 6 or Delta, you're not, it's not a physical thing, it's a basically an intellectual thing, like a great spy, or a guy that I might recruit when I'm overseas might be a deaf guy, right, but and he's shunned in this his own country. They think he's diseased, or they think he's retarded or something, he's just deaf, right, he's a great, you know, but you put him on a corner to watch a place and to jot down truck numbers or something like that. And that guy will do a better job and is better for the job than any special operator from any, you know, special operations team. Right. So it's that kind of a mindset. It's, it's, you need to get secrets, but how are you going to get those secrets? Well, a lot of people, you know, they watch TV and they see, well, there's, you know, Brian Fairchild, embassy spy, you know, Ivan Ivanovich, KGB spy, and they're, they meet at bars and stuff. And sooner or later, Brian's going to try to recruit this guy. But what you don't think about is, you know, the, probably the best guy to recruit in the whole embassy is not that KGB guy, right. but the radio operator, right? Because a radio operator gets sees yeah. all traffic right. from the, you know, from the, the, the ambassador on down, including the KGB and stuff. So if you could get, and if you could get the KGB radio operator, you'd be like a pig in poop, man. I mean, that would be the, you know, the perfect thing. So the, the deal is you you need somebody with access to secret information. Right. And if you find that, then you develop a relationship and, you know, you go down the line, you try to figure the, the person out. And at some point, you know, when you think you figured out a way to pitch that person, you know, to 
to, to spring a recruitment approach on him. You might, you know, you come at it from his point of view and you say, hey, Yvonne, you know, I mean, yeah, your boss is, you know, is having an affair with your wife and, uh, you know, your babies need that new pair of shoes and you haven't got the Levi's that you wanted to get while you were here, you know, whatever it's going to be. Right. Maybe I can help, you know, or I've got a friend of mine that can help and your expertise would really be, you know, appreciated too, you know, that kind of thing. So that's what espionage is all about. So you then yeah, when you that relationship. Gotcha. now there's a paramilitary case officer the paramilitary case officer didn't i mean we've always had him you right. know we had him from the crossover from oss you know in the the director of operations there was always a, a special activities division and a special operations group within the spe special activities division and those guys were the guys who were the vietnam vets and who were still doing you know, operations that were paramilitary, you know, going after arms traffickers or going to the Golden Triangle or, you know, that kind of deal. But uh, but the paramilitary operations officer that you see in the movies now, they, that came after 2001. And they're just like, you know, just like you see in the movies. I mean, you've got your, you know, you've got your weapon, you've got your goggles, you're coming in on a helo, you're going to go after that one terrorist or that one cell, you know, and you, you, run the operation, capture or kill, boom, you're out of there, successful mission. And you just keep repeating that over and over and over. So you can see there are two different things, right. you know, they're completely separate. I mean, there's the paramilitary guys doing paramilitary operations against paramilitary targets. And then you've got spies who can do those kind of operations against anybody, right? I mean, uh, you could be going after economic targets, political targets, diplomatic targets, intelligence targets, you know, whatever targets you have. And you might be an overweight guy. You might be a guy that looks like me. You might have a speech defect. doesn't matter as long as you can get access to that information and recruit sources and, and get that secret information back to your policymakers so that they can make policy. So that's sort of the basic makeup of the of the CIA. Does that answer your question? It it does. Thank you. My my next question is since there's basically I'm I'm hearing like there's two arms. You got the paramilitary guys that are out there operating, and then you have the spies that are out there with the everyday civilians, if you will. Correct. How right. often do they cross paths? And and you know, because sometimes you see that, that there's you know a, a you know if, if if somebody's running an op. Uh, the paramilitary people are running an op and they, they you know, do, is it common for them to potentially cross paths with the spy that are in the, that are in the field? Do they know that they're in the field or do they keep that cover? Covered? Yeah. Well, here's the, here's the deal on that. And I, I can say for almost my whole time in, in the agency, uh, I never did a joint operation with uh, any of the special activities guys. I knew some guys there and we could, you know, we, we would talk and we would joke about stuff down in the cafeteria, but I never ran a joint operation with them. But what happened, and it's even worse, what happened was that the spies dominated CIA from the time it was created in 1947 to mm. 1991. And then in 1991, the reason for CIA's existence, the Soviet Union, went belly up. Right. So then right? what? Well, yeah. So, so, you know, so then all the spies don't have a mission anymore and they, the CIA starts downsizing. 
and they start closing stations and closing bases and bringing people home and getting early outs and all this sort of thing. And then, you know, that wasn't happening quickly enough for them. So they started offering early out bonuses and basically saying, we don't want you anymore. You know, we'll give you money, leave. You know, I mean, you guys did a great job. You won the Cold War. Man, that's fantastic. But, you know, we 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 just don't have a mission anymore. And we don't need to have guys all over the world because the Soviet Union is no longer in existence. So we don't need to be countering them at every every spot. So go home. So like I was in Tokyo Station and, I, uh, and any case officer worth his salt never wanted to go home, never right. wanted to go to 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 uh, headquarters and walk the, the halls of headquarters. I mean, that's what I've just been saying. I mean, what's your job as a case officer, right. you know, to be overseas and, and recruiting spies and penetrating governments and, you know, running surveillance operations on guys and, you know, stuff like that. So that's what you wanted to do. So, you know, when it, when it came time for me to leave, I would say, you know, and I knew this, this was going on and that they were just trying to get rid of people. I would write into headquarters and say, Tell me where nobody else wants to go, but you still want to fill the slot. You know, Georgetown, Guyana, I don't care. You know, tell me where you nobody wants to go. Send me there. I'll go there. And they'd say, nah, no, Brian, come on back to headquarters. And I'd wait a little while and I'd hear, you know, news on, you know, on the rumor mill. And, and I'd say, hey, well, I'd like to put in for, uh, you know, Portugal. I hear you need some stuff going on in Portugal. And they'd say, no, nah, Brian, come back to headquarters. We don't we don't really need to go there. Finally, I wrote back and I said, well, look, OK, I realize I'm going to have to come back to some capacity. Send me to the farm. I'll teach other guys how to do this stuff at the farm. They, they said, look, we're let us offer you this money and leave. <laughs> Basically, they said, we'll offer you an early out bonus. You know, if you want, it, you Damn can take your, <laughs> you, can, you can take your money that you paid into retirement with that bonus. You'll have a whole lot of money. You can start another whole life. That's probably what we you should do. And, you know, after fighting it for as much as I could, I just finally said, okay, great. Give me the bonus. Uh, you know, that's what I'll do. But uh, so from, from 1991 to 2001, CIA didn't have a mission. And it was rudderless. I mean, it was like, it, it, you know, your primary mission was always the Soviet Union. Maybe you had, you know, one of, one of several primaries, like you'd have Russia, China, you know, North Korea, you know, or something like that. But, right. you know, you always had priorities. But now there wasn't any primary mission. There was no one thing that CIA was set up to do. And in fact, there were congressmen at the time. Uh, and one of the famous congressmen at the time was Daniel Patrick Moynihan. And Daniel Patrick Moynihan, who was this really famous flamboyant sort of a guy, came to this guy here. This is Jim Woolsey, who was director at that time. He came up to Jim and said, Jim, hey, how you doing, Jim? You did a great job. Way to go. You beat the Soviet, beat the Cold War. You know, you did a great job. Do we even need a CIA anymore? Do we need you guys anymore? You know, so, I mean, it was that kind of a thing. And so, you know, so uh, so CIA didn't have a mission. They're, you know, closing down things left and right. And, and the politicians say, we want the peace dividend. Right. All that money that's been going into countering the Soviet Union, man, those politicians could use that in their constituencies. You can bet that, you know, so it's like, give me the money. Mm -hmm. See you guys later. You know, that kind of thing. So they all started doing that. And CIA was rudderless for 10 years until 
September 11th, 19, I mean, 2001, when Al-Qaeda hit, boom, all of a sudden the, the, the you know, CIA had a primary mission again, and it was counterterrorism. But, you know, we're a strategic intelligence agency. We're, the, we're supposed to be the premier strategic civilian intelligence agency in the U.S. government. But, and so when we were after the Soviet Union, we were strategic. We were global. We had to understand the Soviet Union. We had to understand the, the countries that they were trying to get close to. Why would, why would they want to have this relationship with the Soviets? All this strategic stuff, right? Not tactical going after that one guy, that one cell. I mean, this was what's going on in the world kind of strategic. Right. But now it's nothing but this, Adam. It's just nothing but that. It's counterterrorism, Al-Qaeda counterterrorism that's all we're going to do that's really what we're going to do and like you know for any organization you know institutions have to have certain things you have to have a budget right you have to have personnel and so forth so right. what was cia you know cia situation well it got a budget for counterterrorism it recruited people for counterterrorism no no more guys like brian fairchild writing block letters to Mike Todorovich. Now they're going after the teams. And see, and they didn't even create their own cool special operations group. What they did is they went directly to SEAL Team 6 right. and Delta and the SEAL teams and the special forces groups and 75th Ranger Regiment and uh, and uh, Marine Recon. And they took people right out of those teams that were getting ready to either re-up or, or retire, you know, get out. And they said, how would you like to be CIA officers? So they took those guys and they pulled them right over. They sprinkled holy water on them and said, you're CIA, you're CIA, you're CIA. And that's how that all happened. So we had a, a world-class special operations uh, paramilitary capability because we had the best in the world yeah. that came from the team. But now there's no more espionage stuff going on. There's no more that side of the house, right? And that has major ramifications for the United States position in the world, as as we'll get into. But Anyway, so CIA focuses on that, you know, that counterterrorism thing as basically an exclusive deal, but it doesn't focus on it in a strategic way. Okay. And what I mean is that Islamist terrorism, you know, was spreading around the world. Islamist terrorism is an ideology. You know, the backbone of Islamist terrorism is the Muslim Brotherhood. You know, I mean, you can go into, you know, a whole lot of you know, things into this, but if you're going after it strategically, you know, to try to, to stem terrorism, well, going after individuals tactically that might be ready to blow up a bus or blow up a, a shopping center or something, you can kill those guys or capture them all day long, and the the, the thing still remains, right? Because it's an ideology. You have a whole slew of, you know, people who ideologically agree with them. There are supporters, there are soldiers, there are leaders, you know, that sort of thing. So yeah. strategically, you would have to go after it on an ideological basis, you'd have to deal with your Muslim counterparts, say, look, I'm sure you guys agree with us. You know, we know that all Muslims aren't bad. We know that all Muslims aren't jihadis, but we got to get rid of these jihadi guys. So help us, you know, help us discredit their ideology and their, you know, leadership and their, the people that they look up to and bin Laden and the Muslim Brotherhood and all this. But we didn't. We just went after the tactical targets. Let me ask, and, let, hold on, let me, let me interrupt you here, yeah. Brian, real quick, because yeah, sure. you, you're bringing something up now. If that's the case, why do we, why do we put, you know, you're talking like this, like we got blinders on. Why, are, why are we putting the blinders on and, and 
in that situation. Why aren't we? I mean, it sounds what you're saying sounds great. Let's get with the Muslim. Yeah, I, I got friends who who are Muslim. I, you know, I grew up going yeah. to church. Love these people to death. Great people. But then you you know our our let's be honest. Our mainstream media here in the United States will, will tell you, well, that person's Muslim. They're a jihadist. They're far, you know, left, and, and you're a far right, or whatever. Those are the only two things. And and we know that, you know, the nice thing about America, is we're a melting pot, and there's a right. lot. You can sit down with somebody that doesn't have the same political views as you, but when you sit down and talk to them, you find out that there's really not a lot of difference between the two of you. But it sure. seems like you know, me, uh, mainstream media now, social media will 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 tend to have people believe one thing or the other. And what you're saying is the CIA that we've put our blinders on, and this is what we're focusing on. Why don't they take the blinders off and and do what what is there? Now, I I'm I'm going to sound yeah. a little bit of a conspiracy theorist here, Brian. But but you know, if if we if we solve problems, there's not a war to fight. Somebody's not getting paid. Is is that an honest thing? That no, no. I mean, here's here's what it really came down to is uh, you know, okay. That, so the CIA was a, you know George Tenet was the director at the time. Okay. And George Tenet said at that particular point in time, you know, CIA was basically in chapter 11 bankruptcy. I mean, you know, we had, you know, so few resources, uh, the farm had fallen in disrepair. Few people were trying to come and apply to the agency. You know, this was that 10 years, right. it's, you know, rudderless boat. And, uh, and when man, he got a chance to go after counterterrorism then he grabbed it, right? But right. he was going, we were going after the guys that just blew up the trade center, right? So right there, you got a paramilitary thing, right? You know, and, and, uh, you know, you know, we'd already gone to Afghanistan and Iraq and we were doing that, you know, we were doing that sort of stuff. So I mean, not actually not, not quite yet, but you know, we would eventually get into right. Afghanistan, you know, almost immediately after this transformation, and then, uh, and then three years later, we went into Iraq. But we're doing all this combat stuff, right? right. And the military knows combat stuff. And you know, and since we brought the guys over from the teams, they know combat stuff. Right. So you go with your strengths. Now, I am, uh, you know, I mean, in part of your introduction, you said I, I taught over ten thousand people, blah blah blah, and I was teaching Islamist ideology, Muslim Brotherhood stuff. I'm an expert on that stuff, and uh, but the the government you know, didn't want to go there. And there were several other reasons they didn't want to go there. All those stations and bases that we had around the world to counter the Soviets now became liaison stations and bases to local Muslim governments, right? So like, say, let's say you're in Jordan. In Jordan, you used to have a CIA station and we're running operations against the Soviets and the Chinese, maybe some of the Jordanians, you know, so other Middle Eastern company, countries here and there. But that was basically a spy center. Now it's all a liaison center. And so, the, you know, you say, OK, you're chief of station now. Take this information over to the Jordanian service and see if they can help us find Abdul Abdullah, you know, whatever. Right. And uh, and so the whole thing turns on a on a on a military paramilitary pivot. And it's not, you know, and, and then you get the different leadership in. So, you know, for basically a decade. You know, I had left the agency and I was teaching at CIA and FBI and military and, and police officers all around the world. Me and my partner, Vaughn Forrest, you know, my my counterterrorism partner. And we're you know running around and we're doing the inkblot thing and we're making networks among these police organizations and getting these guys together and solving actual cases and things. 
But but you know the government wasn't there. The government was into well, let's get predator drones up. The government was into well let's get the you know, let's get missions. Let's go try to capture this guy and let's certainly kill these guys because we get information you know that they're looking to do an attack in the United States. So it's all that kind of stuff. And you know and they just didn't want to be bothered I guess with going to Muslim allies and having you know theological conversations about Islam. You know, when they were already on the road to, yeah, we're doing great. We're taking out the, the the bad guys. And so, you know, that was one of the aspects. Then Obama came around. So, you know, so for the decade after 9-11, I'm out there teaching all these guys. Vaughn and I are out there teaching all these guys. But then Obama comes along mm-hmm. and, you know, it was under the Obama's Obama's watch that he said, no longer can the government string the the, the, the words Islam and terrorism or Muslim and terrorism together, that's unacceptable. We're not going to do that. So all of my money, all the money that funded my training for all these organizations, the cops and the agency and bureau and all those guys came from Department of Homeland Security. So when Obama put out that decree, well, Department of Homeland Security just stopped funding all those programs. So the the cops that I was training, Bon and I were training, you know, they would come to us and say, man, you guys have the absolute best training that we've ever gotten. I mean, this is great stuff. And we had five day operator courses. We put on five day operator courses. We would put it on in in, uh, in Las Vegas so that people from all over the country would come to Las Vegas and we'd have, you know, a packed house. We'd have guys from from Delta and, you know, SEAL teams and all and, and cops and the FBI and CIA in the audience. And we would teach these guys about what's really going on and you know here's how you go after these organizations you can go after the ideology and so we we were doing that until obama said that and then these guys said we we can't do your training anymore because we don't just get money for you guys from dhs we have 15 programs from dhs that we're running and they'll cut our funding for all of this stuff so we're just gonna have to let you go so that's how that that happened what for the listeners? Yeah, I don't know. <laughs> yeah, I, uh, like I'm sitting here, just like I, it, there's because there's so many ways I could go with this right now, and it and it's you you would think with the training. I want to I want to take a I want to back up for a second, yeah, because I want clarity on something here, Brian. You talk about a decade of where the CIA was just kind of right treading water, if you will, and you know it, it, the CIA you mentioned was was formed to keep dibs on what Russia was doing and whatnot. But at that time, during the, during during this, uh, you know, we'll, we'll just say the down phase of this, that, yeah. that, that decade, you know, China was doing stuff. North Korea was doing stuff. There was stuff going on in Africa. So why? And, and maybe there was. I, I don't know. But you would think that they would just do a transitional shift and change the operations to focus on more so of, of those other uh, North Korea was another one. I didn't mention that one, but you know, you would think they would mention like China, you would think China and North Korea would be the two biggest ones where we, we definitely need to keep tabs on. And I, and I'd go as far as to say, even during that time frame, you know, China is very, China likes to play chess. They're not playing checkers. Let's be honest. Right, they're, they're, right. they're, they're, they're uh, there was a book, a hundred year marathon. And I think we're, we're right. kind of in the right. middle just on the, over the middle of that right now. Um, and you look at that and how strategically they have been doing things for the last 
you know, two, three decades. Why didn't we focus on, on China and spend more, pay more attention to what they were doing? It's the it's the perfect question, and it's exactly where we need to go in this conversation. And the and the 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 answer is that in that ten year down period, remember politicians didn't think we needed a CIA. They actually thought there was an end to history, right? And that that phrase was used. There's an end to history. You know, the United States is the only the unipower. Unipolar power in the world. Mm. You know, there's nobody else that's around that's even coming close to us. You know, we're never going to have any wars or anything again because you know we're the we're the big deal now, and we'll make sure that the world is is taken care of, and we don't have to worry about that stuff. Right. And so they didn't go to Jim Woolsey and say, "Hey, you know, I, I was kidding. We really do need you guys. You know, and we're going to give you some money so you can keep tracks on you know possible threats to the republic." which you're absolutely right. That's exactly what we should have done. There should always be a level of special foreign intelligence looking for threats to the Republic. That should always be the case, right. but it wasn't. You know, In fact, George Tennant was probably, you know, if you asked him, he was happy as hell that he could even get some funding to keep the agency going. You know, And then once we realized, we, when I say we, and once the agency realized that the whole paramilitary thing was, was a gold mine, then they really focused on that. So, so, so you go 20 years down the line where the United States government has no strategic concept of the world anymore. All they know is counterterrorism, right? right? And for 20 years, all the case officers that are in CIA are now paramilitary case officers. They've all been promoted as paramilitary officers. None of them, or very few of them, you still had a few out there doing China operations and stuff because all institutions are smart enough to say, hey, uh, yeah, we're really focused on our primary mission, but we still need several million dollars to do our China stuff and several more million dollars to do some Middle Eastern stuff. You know, they're always going to do that just to keep stuff going and get get more money. And even if they don't use the money for those operations, you know, they can move (laughs) it over to the counterterrorism. But they're going to say that. Right. So so there was so they we completely lost track of the world. And like you say, you know, once we did that, the world sort of grew up around us yeah. and took, took, took advantage of our myopic vision. And, and uh, you know, a perfect example of that is the South China Sea. Now, I got out. I, I got out in 95 out of Tokyo Station. and But I've never ceased being an intelligence officer. I figure once you're an intelligence officer, if you join for that reason, I mean, remember, I was 14 saying I wanted to be a spy. So right. that was my motivation. And I kept that up for the rest of my life. And I do research on all these countries like every single day and that, that's why i wrote the book and we can talk about that you know a little later too but but uh you know so in in 2013-14 china starts building their man-made, man-made islands in the south china sea so guys like me that were once in now out we're writing things writing papers and sending them you know the cia and whoever we could send them to saying Hey, this is a problem, guys. I mean, you know, China's building man-made islands in right. the South China Sea, and it's building up its military. And you know, they're not building those islands to have beaches. You know, I mean, this is a, a serious thing, and nobody wanted to listen. In 2015, Obama had a meeting with uh, Xi Jinping and said, "You know, my guys, uh, I hate to bring this up, but my guys, you know, they say that you're building these man-made islands, and that could be a threat to us." And 
you know, let's talk about it. And Xi Jinping looked in his eyes and he said, I promise you we will not militarize those islands until six months later when he started militarizing the island. Right. You know, so so now that's that, that that's you know 2014, 2015. Now 2018 and just three years. Now think about this, Adam. I mean, if we were on the ball, and remember we've got we've got a, a freedom of navigation patrols right. going through there, going right by those islands, watching them being made and stuff, and yet we don't do anything. And then Admiral Davidson, who was then uh, made the head of Indo-Pacific Command, goes to Congress for his hearings. And in his hearings in 2018, they just started back in 2014, only four years later, you know, he's before Congress and he says, for all intents and purposes, all intents and purposes, other than going to war with the United States, China controls everything in the South China Sea. Now, what an indictment that is! Yeah, right. That's a I mean, of, that's you know, a big like, statement to make. It's like, yeah, it's like this didn't just happen overnight. Now, China has strategically changed the balance of power in Asia because they control the South China Sea, you know, and you know, and it just continued going like that. I mean, so you know, all the stuff that you hear about China. Now, China has the largest navy in the world. China has the largest military in the world. China has the largest and most diverse rocket force in the world. China has the, 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 the largest uh, coast guard in the world and the largest maritime militia and the largest fisheries and the largest shipbuilding capability. All of that, you know, is a strategic threat to the United States. And for that whole 20 year period that we were focused on counterterrorism, we didn't do jack about that, right? And so then it's not until 2018 you know, Trump comes to power and uh, and, you know, Mattis comes to work, you know, for him. And, you know, they, they got some pretty good military guys there and they put the, the, the national strategic the national defense strategy out. Yeah. And it's in 2018 where they say, finally, in the national defense strategy, you know, terrorism is no longer the primary you know concern for the United States government. Now it's, you know nation to nation, peer to peer, you know, threats between the United States and China, Russia, North Korea, and Iran. And so that's at least on paper, right. but nothing really happened right. for another two years or so. You know, and once you put it, you know, the, the, the ship of state is just like that, you know, ship of the CIA that's a derelict. Uh, I mean, the ship of state just doesn't go turn like that, right. you know, you get the idea out there. Yeah. Things are changing, and the ship of state starts. You know, well, it, 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 you here's know. the thing. And, and it, after it, ten years or so, the yeah. ship of state you know get to a point like this, and you start actually doing something. But you know, it was 2018 when they finally said, "This is how it is," and we're still just trying to respond to that now. Why is it taking so long for us to respond? You know, well, I, there's I, and still it, people, you know, there's I, still people who don't believe China's a threat. And, and you don't have to look any further than a week or two ago when uh, Xi Jinping came to uh, San Francisco, right? And, uh, you know, we begged, we've been begging the Chinese for, you know, just let us get together. Let's have a meeting. You know, we haven't been doing any policy. And, and, and in fact, I can make a pretty good argument that, that Biden has basically ceded the South China Sea to, to, to the Chinese. But the point of that I was going to make was that a whole bunch of Fortune 500 guys met with Xi Jinping in San Francisco after we had our official talks with you know Biden and stuff, 
And these guys were giving Xi Jinping, who was a, you know, a human rights, you know, uh, you know, a terrible guy in human rights, right. practicing genocide against the Uyghur race, you know, and any other religion in, in China. And anybody who just, you know, doesn't agree with Chinese Communist Party, you know, uh, beliefs. And they gave him a standing ovation. Right. So you can't say that there's a, a big consensus in the United States that China is the enemy and we've got to do something about it. And Biden has been doing everything he can to appease the Chinese ever since he got into power. He has repeatedly said, I don't want confrontation. I don't want oh, war. Yep. I don't want Cold War. Come on. I just want us to be competitors. Brian, Brian, and you, you, you eating that up with a big spoon, you, spoon at them, and they're taking advantage of us every single day. Yeah, yeah. Oh my God, Brian! You, I yeah. mean, yeah, I mean, you know, I mean, it's like let me maybe I should ask. Maybe this is the question I should ask: Does China run the world? Well, it's getting to be. It's getting to where it runs the world. I mean, if you if you look at here's even the worst part, Adam and. Oh, <laughs> it just it just goes on from here, and this yeah, you know, and the thing that I like about just saying this stuff is it's it's apparently obvious that the points I'm making are are true, right? But you might have heard people recently saying people in government, you know, recently saying things like, well, you know, China and Russia, and increasingly Iran or increasingly North Korea, you know, depending on who's talking. Are like getting together, and that could be that could be a, a complication for us. But the fact of the matter is, there's a new axis of evil, yep. right? And the new axis of evil is an anti-American military bloc led by China. Right. And I wrote this paper back more than a year ago, and I sent it to everybody I could think of, and it's it was actually called the new axis of evil: colon, you know, the the anti-American military bloc led by China. And I make the case, you know, over a year ago that, you know, China, Russia, Iran, you know, have been doing joint military, you know, uh, patrols, naval patrols, air patrols. Of course, the, the Chinese and the, and the Russians are together. They're doing all kinds of patrols, even up in the Aleutian Islands. You know, uh, North Korea, Iran are supplying, you know, Russia with uh, weapons for the war down in Ukraine, you know, uh, you know. And what they do as the new axis of evil, they're bonded and they're, they all share the same ideology, which is let's unseat the United States from being the world leader so that we can take over. Right. And they say this, right? They actually say it. Yeah. So it's yep. not like Brian Fairchild's making this up. Yep. I mean, they actually say this. And so, you know, yet <clears throat> we treat Biden, at least, treats the, the world scene today as though North Korea and Iran and Russia and China are separate problems. And that when we regard China, we've got 10 years to catch up with them. That's what he says, I mean, in his formal policy documents. But they're not separate problems. They're a bonded right. anti-American alliance, which are doing things against us every single day. Right. And they create crises at their at their on their timelines, at their behest. That will that will you know deplete our resources and send our resources to the four winds. Right. And one of the best examples right now is what's going on in the Middle East with uh, with Iran and the Israel war in Gaza. You know, no sooner had that started that you know the Iranian leadership and Hamas leadership went to Russia and had a big meeting. Yeah. 
you know, I mean, it was a done deal. I mean, they, uh, my belief is that the new axis of evil, wanting to separate American capabilities and resources, you know, had, had Hamas attack Israel on October 7th, knowing that we would have to respond and that we would use up a whole lot of our precious resources and get really involved in a situation that's really difficult and they could bring the whole world against the United States because Israel's pounding, you know, Palestinians and they know how that always works out. You know, so that's what's actually going on. There's a new alliance and it's a, you know, and unless the United States government addresses that alliance as a anti-American block working against us every day, rather than separate problems that we might be able to work on separately, you know, we're going to just keep going down and down and down. Right. And I, I, you know, I, my gut wants to say follow the money, you know, because you, because you look at, yeah. I'm not going to say who, but you look at certain. Well, yeah, I know exactly where you're going. Political but, leaders, yeah, in 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 our in our government, you look, and if you follow their money, you'll see where their ties are. Now, yeah. and, and and listen, don't take my word for it. Look this up yourself. Every everybody, ninety nine percent of the, this country carries around these little pocket computers oh, called yeah. cell phones. Now, look it up. You're sitting there flipping through crap, wasting half your day anyway. Look, look some of this stuff yeah. up and educate yourself. Yeah, uh, education is something that's not a real. Oh yeah, yeah, thing. yeah. I, I know. I'm, I'm probably going out on a limb saying that. But but but, but <laughs> you know, I mean, there's obviously a reason for this, right? But you know. Even with you know, without knowing full well what that reason is, there's a reality. Right. And the reality is that this is what's going on in the world. And it doesn't matter what Biden says or any politician says. Right. This is what's going on in the world. And you know, look at what happens. If you know, all of a sudden, you know, the the new axis of evil will get together and say, well, hey, let's cause some problems for America up around North Korea. So North Korea will lob missiles over Japan, you know, and they'll threaten this and threaten that and say maybe they're going to have a ne the next nuclear, uh, you know, nuclear test. And we send assets up there. We send two battle carrier groups, and and we'll, we'll quell things down, you know. And then stuff happens over in in, uh, in the Middle East, and we've got like 58 vessels over there now, and a Marine Expeditionary Force, and all this kind of stuff, yeah, taking our resources yet again and putting them somewhere. And then we're we're trying like hell to try to figure out where are we going to get the the ammunition and the 155 millimeter shells to give Ukraine because we're running out of stuff and we've taken it out of our own ammo dumps and given it to them. Now we don't have enough if we get in the war. And then what happens, Adam? If when all this is going on and they've separated our resources and our attention and our intelligence concepts and and our assumptions about the world and they walk on Taiwan, you know, well, I think that's no, the plan. I think that's been there's the plan. no strategic concept in the United States anymore. I, I think so, that's been the plan for for the last yeah. six seven years is they want to so, take over Taiwan. So what I say, you know, about you know about strategy and people say, well, what can we do about this? You know, don't be so pessimistic. Well, you got to be pessimistic. But there are things that you can do. And one thing is that the United States has to have a plan, a strategic plan for the world. See, we don't understand ourselves. And the, the policymakers that sit in Washington today, they don't have any idea of really what our vital national interests are in the world. Right. Right. I mean, people right. say, oh, oh, you know, obviously Europe's important. And well, what about Europe's important? You know, and what about Europe's important that? requires the United States to intervene with how much money. See, that's when you start to talk strategy, when you start answering these questions. 
right? right? And, and if you go after Taiwan, China goes after Taiwan right now, well, first, is the United States going to respond? And if it does, how is it, how is it going to respond? And where are you going to bring those assets to go to, to Taiwan? Are you going to take them out of the Middle East? And if you're going to take them out of the Middle East and you didn't need them there to begin with, well, why do you have them there? Right. You know, I mean, see these sorts of things. And, so, and then from what budget are you going to take things to go after Taiwan? And how far are we going to go? And, you know, we can't really get close to Taiwan because China has so many missiles. And here's a here's a fact that probably most of your audience doesn't know. In, in 2021, the U.S. Army wrote a report. They said the People's Liberation Army Rocket Force is the most diverse, you know, expert rocket force in the world. Then they took just anti-ship missiles out of that out of that group. And they said, China has so many anti-ship missiles that they can hit every U.S. combatant in the South China Sea to the extent that every sh- combatant in the South China Sea, American combatant in the South China Sea, has used its entire missile defense capabilities and still have more to pound them with. See, that's a scary thing. And when you're talking about hypersonic missiles, before our battle carrier groups can even get to the point where they can, you know, be close enough to launch attacks, They're getting hit. China can launch its hypersonics against us and sink our carrier groups. And they can hit Guam and they can hit Okinawa with them. And Mark Milley, who just recently left as chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, you know, has said almost verbatim, we can't counter that capability. The United States has no way of countering you know, hypersonic missiles. And so, you know, so we're in a world of hurt. But my point basically goes back to things that you were saying. Why didn't we do this? We should have, right? But we didn't. And obviously, China didn't just snap its fingers and get, you know, the biggest, the biggest, the biggest, the biggest, the best, the best, the best, the best, the more, the more, the more. It happened over decades. And we sat around watching China get to be the most powerful you know, country, certainly within Asia, right. and a powerful country that can now start to threaten the, the United States in the Pacific and other places. And we didn't do a thing, you know? And so, you know, that's, that's why I say, you know, we have not had any strategic concepts in the United States government or any of the intelligence services for well over 20 years. You think- and one of the main reasons was because for that 20 years, we were doing nothing but counterterrorism. And you got to pay the price. You know that's the price we pay. Brian, I want to I want to change gears here, um, and I'm definitely going to have you back on the show because <laughs> there's, there's just so much. There's more a we lot can, there is so, there. I mean, there's, there's a lot so we can there cover there. But I, w- I want to make sure that we 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 hit on this before we wrap up. Uh, you wrote a book called The Hidden, right? Why why that title and and what is it about? Okay, well. Perfect that you brought that up because this is the perfect time in our conversation to talk about it. I wrote the book because I was pissed off at CIA, right? And let me just say, and all your 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 uh, viewers and listeners, you know, know that as a CIA officer, I have to submit the book to CIA right. before it can be published, and I submitted it. And basically, in two weeks, they they okayed it, and and it's been out and it's been for sale now for a while. But I wrote it because I was pissed off about CIA. And the reason I'm pissed off about CIA is they're starting to get back into the spy game, you know, that we talked about initially. Right. You know, the spies, not the paramilitary guys, but the spies. 
you know, spying on you know, Russia and spying on China and North Korea and Iran and the rest of the world and trying to figure out what the strategic situation of the United States government is. But they're screwing up because they're still hiring people, putting them on a conveyor belt, putting them in a, in a cookie cutter approach, you know, of, uh, of, of training. It's just like if you go into a Fortune 500 company, you start at the bottom, maybe you start the mail room or whatever, and you, you, know, you learn what that Fortune 500 company is about yeah. and who the leaders are and how you write for that company and, and how you do your, your, your accounting for that company. Well, the same thing with a CIA officer. You know, you come in, they, they, they get all these, uh, uh, you know, write your, your applications and send them in to us. And we'll look at all these applications, decide who we want, choose you, bring you, put you on a conveyor belt, you know, train you up at some point. We'll send you to the farm. You can get trained up down there and then we'll send you overseas and we'll send you overseas in a, in an embassy position, or maybe we'll be sneaky and we'll put a couple people in fortune 500 companies over here in, in these foreign capitals. But see, you can't do that anymore because the surveillance technology right. is so absolutely fantastic these days that once you stuck a, a, a flag in the sand and you call it a U.S. embassy and you say all our spies are here, you've just given away the game. Right now, earlier on in the in the Cold War and the past Cold War, that wasn't so bad because we owned a lot of the counterintelligence services that that we were working with, right. right? We would go to these small companies in Asia and Latin America and Europe, and, and they were devastated by the war and stuff. And we would build their counterintelligence services and say, let's jointly work against those bad Soviets. So those guys were working with us. But in the 70s, 80s, and 90s, all of a sudden politics started to change and countries started to say, well, we don't like American policy in our country anymore. And all of a sudden those counterintelligence services were no longer owned by us, but now becoming competitors to us. So you really had to have the ability not to be caught as a spy. Right. So your listeners might say, why? Well, here's the reason. If they know Brian Fairchild is an official cover guy and he's a spy and they follow me around and they see that I go meet somebody from their ministry of economy, let's say, and I'm thinking this guy's a target and down the line, I'm going to recruit him. You know, we've got a good rapport going. I'm getting to be good friends with him and learning about him and his access and stuff. But one night, the counterintelligence service goes over and knocks on that guy's door. And he answers and they say, oh, hi, we're from the, you know, your national intelligence service. And could we come in and talk? He says, sure. Comes in, they say, hey, you know that Brian Fairchild guy, don't you? He says, oh, yes, sir, I do. Oh, yeah, 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 he's a good guy. Yeah, I like him. You know, American embassy guy. He says, yeah, but you know he's a spy, right? Everything changed. Yeah. Right. But all of a sudden that guy knows he can go to he can disappear tomorrow. Mm -hmm. He might never come out of a prison. He might be shot in the back of the head. I mean, it's a bad thing all around. And it, and all of a sudden his eyes get this big and he's like, oh, you know, and the guy said, oh, calm down, calm down. And the, the ministry guy says, well, I will stop seeing him right away. And they say, no, <laughs> no, no, no. Don't be silly. We don't want you to stop seeing him. We want you to continue to see him. And at some point, he's going to try to recruit you as a spy. And when he does, we want you to accept. And when you accept, we're going to provide you with the intelligence to give him for him to give back to head, his headquarters and for his headquarters to give to the policymakers. Yeah. And it's all going to be erroneous. Yeah. It's all going to be fake intelligence. And they're going to make their intelligence based on bad assumptions and bad intelligence. Right. So you that becomes a double agent. That's right. what's called a double agent. 
See, so you got to have cover because if you don't have cover, you can't have secret operations. And and CIA had just run into all kinds of trouble with that. You know, back in 2010, its entire China network was wrapped up by the Chinese, the entire China network. And then uh, two years ago, their their uh, uh, their counterintelligence center came out and sent a cable to worldwide stations and bases, meaning it went to everybody in the field. And they said, man, oh, man, you know, for the last year or so, we've been having dozens and dozens of guys that you, Brian Fairchild, recruited and run as spies over in these foreign countries. All you guys out there, you know, your assets are being wrapped up. They're being shot. They're being imprisoned. They're being turned into double agents. What the hell are you guys doing? We don't believe that you, you know, that you're doing your job. You're you're recruiting people too fast. You're not doing counterintelligence. You know, you're not doing good enough tradecraft. You're letting people follow you, so forth and so on. Well, the reason for that is this, you know, I believe, I mean, the CIA started, started looking right away. Do we have a mole? But no, it's just a lousy way they operate. And, you know, you can't stick a flag in the sand anymore and say, you know, here we are and expect those guys to remain secret and not compromise. So, you know, let me give you just an example of one kind of technology. I mean, you've heard about CCTV and all that kind of stuff, and and it's just everywhere, right? In fact, the CIA itself said 30 countries can surveil our officers overseas without ever putting a real live live person against them through technology, right? But now let me tell you about this one technology that will just blow your mind, and it's called Whammy. And whammy is wide area motion imagery. And whammy is, is, a, is a small package that you can have on a Cessna aircraft, you can have on a large drone, you can have on a satellite, you can have you know, a whole lot of different ways. It's not a huge thing. It's not a, a room-sized you know, thing. I and mean, you can have it on a, on a private Cessna. And you circle the city. Say you're circling Washington, D.C., and it continually circles, and a cone of digital photography goes down and and basically covers that whole city. So as you, you know, fly around the city, that cone is constantly recording all movement in the city. Right. All the time. All movement in the city all the time. And as long as you have that digital record, you can not only watch what Brian Fairchild is doing now in real time, but if once you figured out Brian Fairchild a spy, you can go back for six months, a year, however long you've got it stored and find out every route he's ever taken from his house, who he's met, what businesses he's gone to, what people he's met, what restaurants he goes to, what things he does on the weekends. You can get all of that. So how in the hell can you have a, an official cover guy stick a, a, a flag in the sand, put your people there and expect them to get away with secret operations? You can't. OK, this cues up the book again. The title of my book is called The Hidden, and that title refers to remaining hidden below China's surveillance capability. And you can't do it like I've just said CIA does it, right? right? You can't do it that way. So you have to have a radically new way of doing it. Now, I told you earlier that I've been both non-official cover and official cover. Non-official cover is best because you don't have anything to do with the embassy or you're not supposed to or any military installations or any U.S. government connections at all. You're supposed to be out there in the middle of the population. Nobody's supposed to figure you out. So right now, CIA, you know, and another thing I've got to say is in 1975, 
our people, our military, the Pentagon, you know, made statements about the capabilities of our satellites. In 1975, they said our satellites were so good they could take pictures of license plates, you know, from however far up in, in the sky they were. Yeah. Well, it's 40 years later. Do you think China's got that capability now? You know, irrespective of whammy and all that sort of thing, they've got one of the most active space programs and satellite, you know, recording uh, surveillance programs in the world. So if you bring people in the CIA headquarters, you got their license plates. Nobody can be undercover anymore when you go to a known location. Now, have you ever been around CIA CIA headquarters, Adam? Have you ever been back in Northern Virginia or, or whatever? I've been around it i haven't been on it or anything like that obviously but, but okay well there's the there's two it, it's bordered by two main arteries right route 123 yep. that goes you know right up to tyson's corner in the shopping centers and stuff and the george washington parkway yep. and in between those two main arteries is cia headquarters yep. it's a forested area but it's not out in the middle of nowhere it's right. right in the middle of a residential area you just go down a couple of blocks and you're McLean and Langley and you know that sort of thing. So CIA has when you're coming when you're coming uh, eastbound on 123, there's a three turn lanes yep. you get into to turn into CIA headquarters with a big sign saying CIA right here. Well, if you use no cool technology at all, but if you just had 15 guys and I just use the word you know 15 just for the hell of it, 15, 20, 100, two, whatever. And you just had 15 guys coming, you know, eastward down, you know, down Route 123 and 15 guys going northward on 123, especially at, at you know, the end of the day. And passengers are just taking down license plate numbers of cars that are coming out of CIA. you got so many of them right there. Right. Right. And that's not even using, a, a you know, a hidden uh, license plate reader or anything that you could just have on the, uh, the bottom of your bumper and, and soak up everything about all those vehicles going in and out. So you don't need high technology to figure out that people work at CIA. So you can't do that anymore. That's my point. Yeah. So how do you do it? How do you get new recruits and well, how do you have a new kind of a clandestine service? Yeah. Well, you got to do it sort of like the way sports talent scouts get their talent, right? The NFL comes to them and, and you know, there's no headquarters. There's no, you know, one place where they're going to bring all these people to and, and say, oh, show us your talent. They get a guy like you or me and they say, hey, you know, Adam, you know, ball better than I'm ever going to know ball. Right. You know, I want to hire you go to, you know, junior high school football games and high school and, you know, junior college and college and, and find me talent. And I'm looking for I need a guard. I need a tight, you know, tight end. I need I need a quarterback. I need, you know, whatever. And you go out and you watch these people. Right. And you go out and you find talent and you hear rumors that there's going to be a Sandlot ball game over here. And you go over there and you find you know, sooner or later you go, holy crap, look at the way that kid hits. Man, what an arm on this guy, that guard. You can't even get through that guard. And you start building a list. Right. Yeah. And you say, hey, so what if you did the same thing? And instead of bringing 20 somethings to CIA, putting them on the, you know, the conveyor belt and the cookie cutter thing. And and start building up their their knowledge of the organization like you know you would in the Fortune 500 company and learning how the mail works and stuff. Why not go have a special cadre that has nothing to do with CIA, nothing to do with intelligence? I mean, you really got to think this through. But you get these talent scouts and they go to foreign countries and they look at the American business community 
right? And there's always stuff going on in the American business community. You have the uh, Chambers of Commerce, right. you have Fourth of July, you know, all this sort of thing. There's plenty of times where you can get in and you can talk to people and find out about other people. And people say, man, that George over there, uh, here we are in the you know, deepest, darkest Africa. And that guy can get contracts like nobody's business. He's got contacts with the tribes. He's got contacts with, you know, the government, man, that guy knows what he's doing. You know, and you find people like that. And then you you do the big search thing that we can do now with AI and you know everything about everybody's life almost instantly. Right. And you find out that old George over there was in the 82nd Airborne back when. And he did two tours in Afghanistan. He's got a bronze bronze, you know, star with a V device for for valor. And you and you find out, you know, everything that I can find out about this guy indicates that he's a loyal American and he's just doing his best to be a businessman and make a life for his family. Right. In fact, he's married to a local. You know, and, and in fact, the local he's married to has a cousin in the government, you know, that kind of thing. Mm-hmm. And you wait for old George to come back to, you know, Virginia or wherever his home base is for a vacation. And you approach him and you say, hey, George, you know, my name is such and such. I, you know, I, I represent an intelligence, intelligence organization here in the United States, and I've got a proposition for you. Would you like to make a contribution for your country? You know, and you take it from there. Right. And all of a sudden. You go from, you know, recruiting a cadre of kids that don't know anything and probably won't know anything for seven to 10 years of assignments. And you've been taking them and you've been throwing them against the wall like spaghetti, seeing if something's going to stick, hoping that because they're trying, some of them will make a success out of something. And you go from that to recruiting guys who already have networks, friends, relationships, understanding of the politics, the whole thing. And you only need a few of those guys. So you need a lot of the the, the young 20-somethings because only some of those guys are going to succeed. So as you're throwing the spaghetti against the wall, you got to have enough spaghetti to throw against the wall. But if you're being selective, like you're look, looking at SEAL Team 6, who's going to be our next SEAL Team 6 guy, or who are we going to let in the Delta, or who are we going to let in the, the teams and the special forces groups and the rest, and you recruit that way, quality, not quantity, you know, you only need a few guys in a few key locations you know, and you've got your cadre right there. So that's the kind of thing that we need to do now. And CIA is not doing it. And CIA would basically have to say to the policymakers and the American public, we're obsolete. The way we're doing this stuff, you know, isn't going to work. You know, it doesn't work. And in fact, look at all the the problems we've had in the recent past of getting wrapped up and, you know, our sources killed and in prison. I mean, it's obviously not working. We got to do something else, but we can't do it for you because, Everybody knows us, so somebody else has to do that. And that's why I wrote the book, and that's why it's called The Hidden. Where can people find it? Oh, you can, you know, you can go to brianfairchildbooks.com. You can go to freehiddenchapters.com, and it'll take you right. It'll take you to my website. It'll take you right to the chapters, and you can read the uh, summary, the prologue, and the first two chapters absolutely free. And, uh, and the first two chapters care, uh, cover a lot about what you and I have just been talking about, Adam, about how uh, one thing that will wake people up is how, you know, you and I talking to American politics, whether you like Trump or you don't like Trump or Biden or whatever, you know, that's two Americans talking. We can do that sort of thing. We can call each other names. But when you read about how an enemy thinks about you, yeah, that all of a sudden perks you up, you know, oh, dastard. that's what they think about us. You know, but then when you look at it, you figure, oh, yeah, they're right. Yeah, you they're know? not far off, and, and, unfortunately. <laughs> yeah. And you see that and the United States of America now, I mean, there's so much dysfunction and division wow. and polarization between us 
that we've basically mitigated, uh, you know, we, we've, we've removed the United word from the United States of America. Yeah. You know, there is no United States of America now. There's a dysfunctional States of America or <laughs> polarized States of America, yeah. but you don't have a United States of America. And China's taking advantage of that, you know, so. So anyway, that's how that's why I wrote the book. And that's why it's called The Hidden. And, you know, I hope that if your folks go and look at it, they'll enjoy it. And, and we're going to we're going to have links to to your website and where they can get the book and, and, and read the chapters in the show notes. Uh, Fantastic. But below here, folks. So. Um, God, Brian, I, I I'm on time. I have to go, unfortunately. But yeah, I, 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 I uh, we're going to have you back on because there's so much more I think we can cover. Um but I got one more question for you. Sure, sure. You're on a show called The Decision Hour, and and um, you know we make decisions every single day. Name a time in your life where your feet were on the line, and you had to make that decision. What was it, and what oh, was the atmosphere like? Well, you know, actually, there are several. You know, and. You know, certain certain ones come to to mind, and 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 one of them is a little funny. I was in Afghanistan, and I was living in a in a place called Green Village. I lived outside of the green zone and worked outside of the green zone with, you know, uh, Afghan intelligence officers. But I lived in this place called uh, Green Village, and it was like six o'clock in the morning, and I just gotten out of the shower and I'm naked, and all of a sudden, boom. You know, the bad guys blew up the main gate and the, you know, the, 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 the blast, you know, the, the, you know, the blast, you know, knocked me back a little bit and, but I'm naked. Right. And all of a sudden you hear, so, you know, not only did they blow the gate, but the, you know, but the compound is is being infiltrated. And so, you know, I mean, I, I, you know, it's kind of funny. It's like, well, you know, I could like stay naked and go hide in the shower you know, or uh, well, I guess I'll throw on my pants and I'll like, get try to get in my boots and throw this shirt on and I get my M1 and, and down the stairs I go, you know, and then there was a little defensive position down the stairs and my uh, at my uh, uh, Afghan national and uh, Afghan assistant, an American Afghan assistant who was my interpreter and stuff, he goes and peels off the one of them and I go and peel off the other and we're ready to go, you know, but it's, but it's like, you know, Boom! I'm naked. What the hell? I you know, what I do? Now? <laughs> so, so you know, so it's not all this really. You know, you see in the movies. You know, you're going down the patrol and all. Bing, bing, bing. Oh, okay, you know, okay, red one, that red one doesn't go anywhere. You know, not that. that boom! Oh fuck! What do I do now? You know, oh shit! Where's my pants? Where's my pants? You know, and then. <laughs> I started oh, thinking like, God, I really don't. I know I came into this world this way, but this isn't that <laughs> how I was expecting to leave? Yeah, you know? yeah, yeah, I might very well leave like this. <laughs> then there, there's then another one I can remember is uh, airborne. You know, first the first jump, you know, and uh, you know, and nothing can can prepare you for that first jump. I mean, you jump out of mock towers and stuff like that, but the next thing you know, you're up in a, you know, a C-130, and you're going to go out the door and and. Uh, they say stand in the door and you stand in the door and you're looking at everything down below and you're going, Hey, this doesn't look like it was mock towers. Yeah. You know? <laughs> I mean, I got jump out in the nothingness here. Yeah. You know, I mean there's there's nothingness there, you know, and if they keep you there for a while, because the pilot's gotta go around, you know, to come around again because the air's been kind of bumpy or something. You know, then all of a sudden, you know, you can go from bad to worse if you start turning around. I didn't do that. 
but I saw a guy who did that and the, and the jump master just grabbed a hold of the cable, hoisted his feet up and kicked that guy out the door. The guy, Whoa. <laughs> 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 because you just can't, you know, you can't hesitate in the right. door. You can't have a whole plane of guys panicking, you know, so there was that kind of thing. And, you know, we, you know, when we get back together, we can tell some funny stories. Uh, let me tell this one funny yeah, story. Yeah, please. Right? Yeah. So it's jump school. <laughs> the first jump goes perfect. And you're down, and it's a beautiful day, man. And you're going, I was worried about this. Yeah. This is great. Look at this. this is, oh, wow. This is, I want to do this every day in my life. So the second jump, and nobody ate breakfast the first jump. Right. You don't know, right? You don't know how it's going to affect you. You know, you don't want to get ill or anything. So the second jump, I eat two breakfasts and I'm ready to go. And, and I'm like, man, this is going to be great. I can't wait to get out the door. And and you got your uh, steel pot at the time and you're coming to yourself. You know, and then the guy gets up and he comes up with a bullhorn and he says, uh, okay, all you guys, uh, you know, you probably recognize that we've been circling the drop zone for a while. I, I hadn't. I hadn't realized that. Yeah. And then, and then he said, and, and you probably realize that we're kind of going through a storm. And it's been a little jumpy, uh, bumpy. And I hadn't realized that either. <laughs> so he says, so he says, uh, so if any of you guys are feeling a little seasick, you know, we got these bags up here and I'll tell you, Adam, it's the, you know, the, the strength of, you know, of, of the suggestion. Yeah. As soon as he says that, I go, Oh my, oh my God. But peer group pressure keeps it in, right? Because you know, you know, I'm on the inside. Don't there's be that one. Don't be that guy. Don't. And, I'm way, and I'm way in the back. So there's guys on the fuselage here. There's guys where I am, guys behind me, and guys in the next fuselage. So I turn to Bob Weaver and I say, hey, Bob, get me one of those bags. And he's like, oh, okay, Brian. Yeah, and he gets the bag. So now I've got the bag. And the bag is, you know, once you got it, you know, it's like, I might as well use it. Right. <laughs> And I, I tried to keep it down, but it wasn't going to work. And we hit another bump and it's like, you know, that kind of thing. And so now I've got this bag. And it's like one of those donut bags that you turn and you have the clips. Yeah. You know? So I'm now holding the bag and I look at Bob. He says, take it with you. So I put it behind my quick release, oh, you know, and I, and I just can't wait to get out the door. And finally they open the door and I just run out the door. Ah, get me out of here. And again, a beautiful day and everything's okay. And I'm like, ah. Oh. And then I hear clink, and my body goes like that. And I go, what the hell was that? And I look down, and two of the straps, you only, you're only held into your chute by two straps, and right. one of them is dangling between my legs. You know, obviously, I had, I had lubricated it, you know, when I, when I barfed. Yeah. And then I put the damn thing under, you know, underneath it's the thing, like... and when we went out the door, I smashed that and took it everywhere. So, so I just grabbed a hold of my, you know, my shoulder harness, and they got the black hats down there going, Hey, you, turn into the wind. Turn into the wind. And I'm like, I can't, Sergeant. I can't. <laughs> so the whole way down, I mean, there's no way I was going to let go of those that shoulder harness. And I just, boom, I creamed into the drop zone. And the, you know, the black hat came running. What the hell are you? I told you to turn into the wind. And I pointed to the strap dangling between my legs. And he goes, well, damn. <laughs> and that was it. He walked off. You know, but I mean, so the first jump, you know, going out in the nothingness and then being naked when we came under fire, that those are two things I remember I had to make a decision. You know, what am I going to do? Those are great stories. Brian, I, I <laughs> listen, man, I, I really appreciate it, sir. I, 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 I've had I an absolute, just a, a fantastic time with you uh, today. And I can't thank you enough. Thank you for your service to our country. Thank you for everything that you thank you 
for continuing to educate people on what is going on in the world and, and why we need to pay attention to what's going on. So, uh, uh, my pleasure, Adam, my pleasure. And let's get together again and we can talk even, you know, not on ab- your Absolutely. Talk to you and, and I. And we most certainly will. Folks, all right, sir. That, that is all the time that we have. Brian, thank you again. I'm going to have Brian's contact information where, where you can get his book and his website in the show notes below. Before we let you go, make sure you check out our parent company, Heroes Media Group. Simply go to Heroes Media Group. Dot com. Check out all the great shows and articles that are going up there. Until next time, you've been listening to The Decision Hour.